Welcome to Beyond the Plates, industry talks by Le Cordon Bleu. In this podcast, we get some real insight into the food and hospitality industry from a variety of renowned chefs, industry experts, and Le Cordon Bleu alumni. Join us as we hear the fascinating stories and unique experiences behind some of the best known names in the industry. In this session, I have a pleasure to introduce Chef Oli Debus and Hyde, a restaurant destination where Oli is a head chef and co-owner. Oli is recognized for his experimental seasonal menus, which focus on a fine balance of flavors from the freshest ingredients available, which saw him redefine the face of British fine dining. Oli Debus opened his first restaurant, Debus, in 2012 to an unprecedented critical acclaim. It fast became one of London's busiest restaurants. He released his cookbook two years later and maintained the Michelin star until he closed in 2017 in order to open Hyde. Hyde achieved its first Michelin star right from its inception in 2018. From then on, Hyde has consistently proved its culinary offerings in making it one of the standout food and beverage destinations in London. Ladies and gents, pleased to welcome our guest chef for today, Chef Oli Debus, in this raw talk to know more of his journey and the story behind Hyde. Chef Oli. How you doing, Nathan? Thank you very much for coming on board. Pleasure, pleasure. Great. I've kind of introduced you in a very overview of how your journey began and the, and the concept of Hyde and Debus before. So you can just kind of enlighten this, enlighten your journey so far. Yeah, I mean, looking back to the very beginning, uh, I think I first started cooking when I was six, uh, and that stemmed from just a love of eating. Uh, really enjoyed my food, so the natural progression was to pick up a frying pan as I grew up. So cooking kind of exploded on, on TV. Uh, it was more and more popular, the quality of restaurants um, in London, got better and better. So that also fueled my, my interest. Um, and then uh, I had uh, holiday jobs as soon as I was uh, of legal age to, to work in kitchens. I, I spent the summer holidays uh, working, so uh, in a trattoria in Italy. Um, and then also at Kensington Place, where I actually met Chef Colin Westall, who's uh, obviously lectures at Le Cordon Bleu. And uh, also in a in a three Michelin star restaurant in in Paris, um, so that galvanised my my love of cooking professionally, which obviously is different to cooking as a, as a hobby or domestically. And um, so for that reason, I didn't bother going to university. I, I I thought I'd give cooking a go, and and if it didn't work out, I could I could always go later if I got decent grades at A level. And then um, on my 20th birthday, I started at Le Manoir Quatre Saisons, covered every section of the kitchen. I was there for four years. And that really kind of taught me the basics because I didn't go to, to college. I needed to, to learn the basics uh, you know, on site, essentially. So even though I was relatively unskilled and uh, yeah, very green, uh, every kitchen needs commie chefs. They need need people to do the, the basic prep. So uh, I started at the bottom and uh, yeah, improved uh, 
and got promoted. And, you know, when I started there, I felt like I didn't belong, like I was probably a bit of dead weight almost. So you compensate by starting early, finishing late, you know, working hard, just being very, very humble. You know, I barely opened my mouth for the first year I was there, you know, just said yes or no. And then, um, you know, by the time I left, I actually felt like an asset to the to the kitchen and felt like I could step into any other kitchen and and you know become an asset there too. So it very much kind of forged my my confidence. Uh, I left Le Manoir to go to Hibiscus, which is Claude Bossy's restaurant at the time. Obviously is at Bibendum there uh, now. So I went there. So I took a drop in position to go there because it was a small kitchen. So I went from um uh, kind of junior C level to chef de party and then rose up to become his his head chef and then uh, obviously working there was very interesting very different to Le Manoir because obviously Le Manoir is relatively classic very clean garden-based food but obviously it's a it's a it's a, a machine it's a hotel they do vast number of covers so whereas Hibiscus was very small very, very idiosyncratic maybe a little bit more left field in some of the combinations so it's really different working working there. Um, then I left there to go to Muggeritz in San Sebastian. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that was, again, very different. It, it was much more minimalist style of cooking. There's huge amounts of technique, but very uh, pared back on the plate, which I liked. I found that more striking than a quite a busy plate of food. Um, and very interesting seeing Spanish produce because I'd always worked for French chefs before mm. and actually the quality of the the produce in Spain was incredible the fish the suckling pigs uh, the foie gras the Pyrenean lamb uh, a lot of the vegetables as well were you know absolutely fantastic quality um, and when I was there it was when sort of El Bulli was at its peak and there was a lot of you know that sort of conceptual um, the, you know that you know molecular gastronomy which has its pros and cons um and then i did several stages as well stage at noma uh the fat duck uh, lastrance in paris wd50 in new york uh uh very top end sushi restaurant as well and i think stages are brilliant because you know they offer you an insight into someone else's kitchen you get to try the food um you know they, they can be expensive you know it's it's still got to pay for flights or trains a hotel or whatever it is you know if you're if you're doing them abroad but um it always looks impressive on people's cvs it shows that they're willing to spend their own free time and their own money to become you know better in in their field um and then I wanted to move back to London and I wanted a head chef position. So I was head chef for the opening of Texture Restaurant um, in Portman Square. Yep. So yeah. the, the chef owner was Aggie Sverenson and I'd worked with him at Le Manoir. He wanted to cook up, I guess, a more progressive style of food, lighter, you know, very healthy. And it was a style of food that I didn't think really existed um, in London then. Uh, so that was, that was, amazing being part of that and Aggie's a good friend of mine so uh you know I was very happy to work hard for him and try and turn the restaurant into something successful 
but I always wanted to set up my own restaurant as well. So I had to uh, draw a line in, in the sand uh, effectively because when you're working that many hours a week, it's impossible to raise finances, find a site, uh, do a business plan. So I, um, uh, I left Extra after a couple of years and yeah, it took about the same amount of time to be quite frank to, to get the money, get the site and open uh, Debu, which was uh, my first restaurant. So that was very much a sort of potted, uh, potted history, obviously setting up your own restaurant and it has, a, has a, I guess, another story and another set of challenges in itself. But regarding where I worked to get me to that point, the decision making was always, you know, do I love the food and can I learn something, um, you know, from that that kitchen? So first place I worked at Le Manoir was relatively classic. They're very light and clean flavours. And then the other places I learned were what I worked at was a bit more kind of finishing school, just uh, getting the little touches or, you know, modernism. Uh, and then obviously when you set up your own restaurant, that's your window, so you want to be cooking your own food rather than something that's uh, completely derivative of, of where you've worked before. Mm -hmm. And then when you when you started the the concept of Jabu's, yeah, um, that was that was way back in 2012, correct? It was, yeah. The all the experience what you have kind of amassed working with the food and beverage concepts very international internationally recognized fmb institutions yeah. did you bring in the wealth of experience which you amassed in these areas and put a put a bit of elements of this in in the concept of debris yeah i mean i'd say more than anything what what i brought with me was was confidence um you know, when you're cooking in these places and you're a senior chef, you're turning out plates of food that these you know, internationally recognized restaurants are, are happy to serve. So you think, well, if I'm doing it here, I can do it for myself. Um, I think what I wanted to bring was a, a more maybe youthful, democratic feel to the dining room. So rather than, you know, a very bourgeois experience and, and top end prices, Mm -hmm. You know, at, at Debeau, I wanted to offer people a great night out that also served food that was the same quality of some of these establishments that I'd worked at before, but without the ceremony, uh, you know, or some of the, you know, some of the fine dining touches that, you know, in their own context, you know, are lovely and welcomed, but in a, you know, in a central London restaurant with concrete walls and music playing and you know dimly lit you don't you know you don't really want ceremony or fluff so you know we wanted to offer something that was more streamlined and pass on some of those savings back to the customer to generate repeat customer and, and a sense of loyalty right so we have students logging uh, students and has to be community uh, logging from different parts of the world so for sure. the audience i would I uh, request you to just put some questions in the chat room. I will try to moderate as many questions as possible. Uh, it will be based on the relevance and the topics which sure. can be put together for the discussion. So, uh, Oli, 
when it comes to the the next project which you kind of took on board uh, Abu was yeah. a hide if you yeah. could just give us a, a synopsis of how the concept of hide developed and what was the process in terms of the discussion which went into the stages of development from planning to execution sure. i know it's a it's a it's a vast topic but if we can yeah no 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 i mean um so Evgeny, who's the owner of, of uh, Hedonism Head, had that site as a as a property acquisition and was was looking to do a restaurant. Unfortunately for me, he had come to Dubu a few times and had enjoyed his experience. Um, and he, he contacted me out of the blue. And it was a, at a time when we were looking to do a bigger project. We'd done a fundraise, you know, and we sat on a you know around sort of four mil which sounds like a lot, but for a central London restaurant, but, I mean, you can do something decent with that, but, um, you know, it's an expensive uh, industry, so, but we're just kind of fallen out with the landlord and we'd got out bids on a couple of sites, uh, you know, by, by massive kind of high street chains and the referendum had happened for, for Brexit and all of a sudden it was quite a different um, kind of scenario that that we were in, and a maybe a less attractive one for for hospitality. So we uh, we we didn't have any any sites in mind, and there wasn't really anything coming up. So uh, you know, when Evgeny contacted me, it felt like perfect timing, and uh, I took a look at the site, and I just remember the the natural daylight was amazing it was you know on piccadilly but it had been triple glazed already so there was there was no sound coming in uh beautiful views over green park from the first floor yeah. and you know after five six years at debut i mean it felt like a change and it felt like we'd achieved very quickly everything we could in that site so you know some people were very surprised at the decision to um you know, to leave leave Taboo because you know we'd been full pretty much every every uh, day that we were open there. But um, you know, Taboo was massively compromised. Uh, you know, from the outset because we opened up with such limited funding, and there was really tight space. So there's only so much we could do with with the money we had at the time and with the space we had at the time. So uh, you know, the opportunity to do something new, something you know, bigger scale, chance to reinvent uh, was really compelling because obviously since Taboo had opened in the five years that followed, a lot of places, you know, were kind of opening with a similar aesthetic or feel and, um, and suddenly it felt a little bit more crowded and, and time, to, time to do something different again. So um, the, the thought process behind Hyde was essentially offering uh, a homely luxury in the middle of in the middle of town so uh essentially somewhere you would feel cosseted and nurtured you know the, hence the, the name of the restaurant you know a little bit hidden or cocooned from the world and uh without you know wanted it to be luxury but not opulent so very much a barefoot luxury the luxury is in space to the quality of the ingredients, the cooking, the ceramic tableware, the 
you know, all the you know, the layers of attention to detail, the Lalabo soaps we have. Um, but it, it's it's indulgent, but it's not garish. Um, so we wanted a, I guess, a sense of warmth uh, to the restaurant as well, right? Because a lot of Mayfair places are kind of quite show off, and uh, so we wanted somewhere that that felt a bit a bit warmer, a bit homelier, um, and obviously something that would we could uh, offer alongside the you know the the wine. Uh, Choice from uh, well and spirit choice from from hedonism uh, that that was key that we'd stock the entire cellar and people could get amazing wine to go with their food at a very reasonable markup um, and it, it was very different because at Dubu I could be a bit more autonomous obviously Hyde is completely collaborative and you know him and Tatiana had you know some pre-existing ideas of of what they wanted and uh you know that i liked their vision for the restaurant i think there were things that could you know that i'd bring to the table as well and as, as much as you know i was fearful that collaborations can end up in a, a sort of dilution of of uh of thought it actually um actually kind of got the best out of each other um so uh yeah it worked out worked out very well and uh i was gonna say you, you know very quickly if you're gonna be able to work with you know with people collaboratively and it always felt very organic and uh um yeah there, there might be little things here and there that you might think you'd do differently but either way it's you know it's it's like sort of comparing the stitch so complaining about the, the stitching in a rolls royce you know the the setting for hide is and the the level of investment behind it is more than i'd ever be able to kind of achieve on my own so you know it's uh it doesn't feel like compromise at all mm -hmm. now the the hide is it's now in the second year of inception it is yeah it is, and you quickly achieved a, a, a mission star right from the year one onwards. Now, if you can just tell us about the Hyde as a destination, a concept in terms yeah. of how structurally it is composed of. Yeah, sure. So it's um, it's three floors. So we're starting with uh, starting with below, which is uh, the bar. You can come for a drink before or after dinner. So you just come for a drink anyway. You don't need to even have have dinner. Um, and it's it's growing in popularity and I think Oscar's, Oscar Kinberg's drinks are phenomenal. You know, I set up with him at Dubu and are beautifully balanced, very simple, very, again, fuss free. But um, when you drink them, you know, the balance is, and the clarity of flavor is, is you know, just a joy. Um, so, they, you know, again, very confident in them, in the level to which they're paired back. Um, there's also a walk-in cellar, so you can choose your own bottle of wine. And you have three private dining rooms. You have the reading room, the shadow room, uh, and the broken room. So they they seat uh, four, six, or eight people. Um, and then we have above, which is on the, the mezzanine or the, the first floor. So we go from something very dark and brooding to something a lot lighter, more ethereal. Uh, Again, more spacious, more hedonistic. We want people to really linger here, 
uh, enjoy an amazing you know, tasting menu or set lunch. And this is somewhere that, again, should feel like a treat or somewhere to impress your loved ones or, uh, or a business uh, colleague. And uh, again, when you're eating on this floor, it, it, you know, it should feel special, but it should also feel um, unfussy and you know and streamline and you know if you've only got an hour we'll appreciate that or if you want to spend you know all afternoon and linger then there'll be no rush as well so i think when you have a, such a big restaurant you really need to cater for for everyone's needs rather than being prescriptive uh, and on ground uh we offer breakfast uh lunch dinner and uh, a grazing menu throughout the day. So at any point from half seven in the morning until uh, I think well, last orders for food is about, I think maybe half 10. Um, then we, we serve alcohol till, till I think half 12. So you, you can you can you know, get food and, and, and drink. And uh, yeah, ground is very much the, the hearth of the operation. Um, probably the, the busiest floor um breakfast in particular i hadn't really worked many breakfast uh shifts it was fun coming up with a menu but i had no idea how busy we would be for breakfast there's obviously a huge amount of competition around mayfair and piccadilly but i think the yeah i think the the level of attention to detail that that we offer sets us apart you know all the croissants are freshly baked we make our own jams whip our own butter um and there's a maybe a, a slightly lighter menu uh so a bit more of that kind of australian or hell or la kind of uh brunch feel rather than you know that that more london kind of kippers and smoked salmon feel i mean we do the whole range but you can eat very healthily and also very sub substantially at, at hyde without packing on a load of calories before before 10 a.m yeah yeah, well, that explains why Hyde is a destination. I've got I some. Say, I'd say, I'd say the things that that make us a destination is would be. I mean, apart from the staircase, I sometimes joke that I'm I'm, I'm the, the the chef with the uh, you know at the restaurant with the staircase. So people come for the staircase and they get my food whether they whether they like it or not. Mm. But um, yeah, I'd say it's the. Yeah, the layers of attention to detail um, that differentiate hide from elsewhere, and you know, like I said, and, and the quality as well. You know, when you when you look at everything around you, nothing's been chosen to maximise the bottom line. It's quite the opposite. You know, it's an investment restaurant. You know, when people eat food or you know want, it's really important that anything that's tactile, so the cutlery. Or the glasses that they drink from, you know, feels luxurious. And um, you know, like I said, the, the soaps, the way we tie the napkins, things, the layers of, atten of attention to detail and the individuality with which we do it that that ultimately makes us a destination. Great, great. I have some questions coming around. Sure, uh, yeah. A question from George Hughes. What are the pros and cons in molecular gastronomy, in your opinion? Uh, so the pros are obviously the learning the technique. There's some interesting technique out there. Um, the fact they they question everything. If we, if we didn't 
question things we wouldn't evolve and improve so questioning everything is is very important um the cons are i think the more you process food the more you can actually lose flavor rather than add it and i think it, it's dangerous when ingredients become subservient to technique in my opinion technique is subservient to ingredients and the role of the chef is to take delicious produce and make it the very best version of itself in a very organic manner and some of the techniques in molecular enable you to do that but some of them i feel subjugate the ingredient to, to concept and and uh yeah i think at the end of the day you know it's someone's dinner and it's uh you also need to respect the integrity of the ingredient and respect the labor that goes into it you know the farmers the fishermen you know the guy that you know woke up early you know went out in the cold you know uh to you know to, to get the fish to collect the vegetables i think it the more you think of that that relationship the more simply you want to you want to showcase the food but I mean, there's, there's there's pros and cons. I mean, a bit of theatre yeah. adds to dinner, but it shouldn't descend into into gimmickry. So I'd say it's important to maybe work or learn a little bit of with molecular, but also um, not uh, lose perspective of of uh, of taste and flavour. Flavour and flavour is what you remember. You know, the bells and whistles are exactly that you remember the amazing lasagna that you've eaten somewhere or the steak or the sushi or the ice cream in italy you know because it's a visceral gustatory pleasure rather than something that can be maybe a little bit more hollow yeah yeah well when you well you have, you're a person who has worked in quite a few destinations which which is quite a claim for its molecular contribution molecular cuisine fat dust yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've got some some interesting techniques that hide, but you know, they're always kind of hidden, if that makes sense. In in, yeah. in the dish, it, it's not you know, it's the technique is there to to highlight a certain quality of the ingredient. Uh, so as long as I think as long as molecular gastronomy is used in the right way, then then it, it, it's 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 you know for for the good, but is when you know chefs are you know maybe looking to uh, promote themselves rather than the food they cook that it's um it can be dangerous okay great i have a question leading on to it what cuisine do you love cooking mm. oh um uh, at home um uh, barbecuing and baking uh which isn't really a cuisine i guess that's more that's more techniques um making fresh pasta yeah uh, is, is lovely um and uh but i'd say at work uh, uh the thing that I, I like most is coming up with the new dishes uh and working with with uh chefs to get something special on the menu that process of turning a seed of an idea into a finished plate of food that you feel 
is unique to to you or to the restaurant that that's that's for me the the most fun uh part of it okay great thank you one one last question from one of the students before yep. we go into the next uh series or next set of uh, discussion points mm. question for the chef looking back to your career what are the best lessons learned in terms of keeping progression keep mm. progressing and becoming a great chef and what would you say a person should have in terms of soft and hard skills to become a good head chef um i'd say uh in work ethic is key uh resilience um you know there's you're doing a lot of hours um so you need to be willing to subjugate your social life to your to your career yep. um i think just uh self criticism and uh and you know uh, taste so um you know if you need to be hard on yourself to to progress and and basically be the best version of yourself on on a daily basis because you need to lead by example um and yeah you, you set the standard for for the kitchen and then um you know palate obviously you need to know how things should taste what what they need uh um you know so i mean your fundamental cooking skills obviously need to be at a very high level to get to the head chef level um i think organization is key as well because if if you organize the kitchen then it, you know all the all the chefs will feel confident you know i want them to think oh ollie's on the pass today you know we're going to have a good day and he might be firm but you know there won't be any any issues um i always say let me know early if there's a mistake and then we can we can deal with it don't hide the mistake because then it you know is is when you're uncovering issues just before service then that you hit problems so um i have uh, basically recipes for every dish uh checkpoints for every food you know at 11 o'clock we try pretty much every element of every dish between all the sous chefs um ordering labeling all these things you need to be a well-oiled machine so people come to work they've got a manageable amount of prep um they've got the equipment they need they've got the ingredients they need uh they've got you know they feel empowered through the senior team that are there that are there to help them rather than just to to criticize yeah. uh, and uh i think obviously just remembering what it was like being a chef to party having some empathy and you know there's plenty of restaurants that people can work in they don't have to work in yours so um i think as soon as you stop appreciating staff as an asset to the business i think that's a, that's a that's a if for me I've, i've never worked like that you do hear about a lot of chefs that treat their brigaders or members of their brigaders as disposable i think you know a lot of chefs they work for not much money to initially to to further their career and uh you know i remember you know i'd get how i'd get spoken to what i liked what i didn't like what used to frustrate me what used to to motivate me and uh yeah just try and be be fair but also positive you know you have to be positive 
um, as a head chef. You know, you need to convey, like I said, uh, confidence, positivity, energy, ability, um, you know, because that'll spread. And, you know, it's brilliant if, if, you know, confidence is contagious, but also, you know, nervousness is. So if, if certain people don't have, you know, faith in, in the team, then, uh, you know, or people are scared, then, you know, the, the wheels can fall off very quickly. So I think the main, you know, if I had to give us a single point, it would make people feel like they're on a winning team. Great. You mentioned about organizational uh, importance when you when you plan the plan your you know area. Yeah. Now, Hyde is one of those restaurants which are where I've been where your design aspect of is stellar. You know, the the kitchen, mm. back of the house, yeah. the front of house, the interior yeah. design in general. It is something very astounding. Could you just probably give a light about the the design aspect of it? How you came uh, came around? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, with, with the front of house, that was, uh, we had an architect because there's a lot of nitty gritty regarding extraction and, and, you know, industrial engineering with the building of that, of that, you know, that proportion um, as various, uh, you need to consider the, the flow of human traffic from walking through the front door to getting their, their jacket taken, going to their table, the toilets. So flow is very important. When designing a restaurant, obviously you've got the aesthetics, and uh, you know that that's the fun stuff. And we use some different um, like artisans to make either the. We had uh, some people that did some almost plaster of pallet, uh, Paris paneling with botanicals. Uh, some people make the light shades. We had a carpenter doing all, all the all the tables with the drawers in with the phone chargers, and then back of house, you know, there's there's an equal amount of of design that goes into it but from you know quite different it's um and that starts with the menu you know what are you looking to serve and then dividing the kitchen into the relevant sections uh the kitchen for the ground floor is actually in the basement so the first decision was to put the pass as close to the staircase that leads up it as possible to minimize the distance of travel that the food has um, the the next was maximizing the visibility of the head chef to all passers so you can see the hot pass the cold pass and the pastry pass uh the next thing was uh basically the comfort for the chefs so having the work benches just five centimeters higher is takes a lot of pressure off their back having lighting that feels as as ambient as possible rather than being kind of stuck in some submarine uh, and then the temperature as well uh, so trying to have it as well ventilated as as possible and then other than, than that it was um you know maximizing the area of of refrigerated storage because that's always tight um and another thing to consider is distance between workbenches or workbenches and the stove or workbenches and the pass it needs to be uh one step not to um so you're almost pirouetting if you're on a section rather than having to walk back and forth um so yeah there's a lot to consider 
yeah. but we worked with an amazing design company um and you know the installer to to get what we were what we were after so um and again working in other kitchens before uh was was a big help because you see you see things you like you see things you don't like um so you know it's good to have a bit of experience with other people's um budget before taking things on for yourself great did you by any chance have a test kitchen before when you kind of started implementing it yeah so we um what was interesting i guess working with on a project this big is that you you need to get going straight away um in in the kitchen because you there's so many staff you can't have a a protracted period of time with 50 chefs before opening um so they started off just three of us or four of us um in a test kitchen on outskirts of london something we rented we used some secondhand worktops and we also bought in some equipment early um that we would then take to hide so it wasn't a a, a loss as such it was equipment that we could, we could use down the line as well um and i mean there were so many elements uh, well menu items rather so it's breakfast lunch uh and afternoon tea on the ground floor then there was also uh, a tasting menu and set lunch uh for for above and then we had some uh, feasting menus in the in the private dining rooms and you know the, the smoothies and the juices uh, the jams the croissants the breads the charcuterie uh, the black pudding there was you know a huge number of of uh of of dishes that we had to had to do to create the different menus on the different floors and you don't want many people to be honest that it, should, it needs to be a singular voice uh behind the opening uh, menu so I was working with my senior chefs and then once we had the menu that we we're happy with we cooked it for Evgeny and for Tatiana obviously they were putting you know large investment in uh so it's important that you know they they were happy with with what we were doing and then um I then got the next strata of of hierarchy uh which is all the sous chefs so that was probably another you know maybe about 12 people in total so uh taught them the dishes in the in the test kitchen and then when we moved to piccadilly i had you know approximately 15 people that could train the remaining 40 you know you can't have three people training 50 um it would take too long uh you need a, i think a broader base so it was a kind of pyramid trickle down uh training as such and it worked really well i hadn't done anything on that level before but uh you know a bit of common sense goes goes a long way and uh um also we're fortunate enough to have like a 10 day dry run uh where we could get in friends family uh suppliers and you know they'd be our guinea pigs and uh so you make big strides quickly the first service feels really tough and it can be very demoralizing i remember the first one out at debut 
you know, pretty much just wanted to set fire to the whole place and, you know, padlock myself to one of the, one of the tables, you know, I was utterly depressed and, you know, I was so tired and we were so close to bankruptcy before we'd even opened. <laughs> and then the first service where it was like my parents, Raymond Blanc, brother, you know, closest friends and family. And, you know, I was just, just disappointed. It's so much harder than you think it's going to be because there isn't the protocol. It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was really tough. But then the second service, you're so much better than the first one. Then the third one, you're, you're better still. And, um, I mean, at Debut, I only had, I think, five services, so three days um, before we opened to the public because we had such little money left in the account. Hyde was lucky we had, you know, we had a full 10 days. So we had, uh, you know, close to kind of 30 services before opening to the public. But obviously, it's a much bigger team, more moving parts, more things that can go wrong. Um, but you know, both cases, whenever you do finally open the door, you do feel, um, you know, I mean, you always feel like you could have another day or a bit more time to get things right, but obviously, you just need to need to get on with it. Um, with Taboo, I was completely unknown, so it felt like there was less risk in some ways. We were confident in in what we were doing. Um, but we weren't confident that people would like something so spit back. Whereas at Hyde, you know, it's about as ambitious as it gets in terms of scale. You know, obviously I had, a, had made a reputation, so I had something to lose. Um, but uh, no, luckily, you know, on, on both occasions, we got amazing reviews and yeah. also yeah. very loyal um you know, base of, of customers that, that come back regularly. So, you know, delighted with with both and, and also delighted that success second time around was in a different manner and I was probably a bit more mature so I could actually appreciate it rather than sort of, you know, when I opened Debeur, I probably carried this underdog mentality around with me, which is what, what kept me going. I was functioning off you know, maybe four hours sleep a night, you know, I'd taken out a massive loan personally, uh, the business had, uh, you know, it was very raw and looking back, I was, I was pretty young, you know, I just turned 30. So, um, you know, it was a lot to, to take on and, and, you know, I was very self-critical and, you know, really defined my, my well-being through, through the restaurant and, uh, you know, to a point where it was probably a little, little bit unhealthy. And uh, so it's nice with, with Hyde, you can kind of share it with the team and, and yeah, enjoy it with, with you know, uh, yeah, a, a better perspective. Great. Got some, thank you. We got some questions coming around, but just before I do the, you know, talk through this questions, mm. just wanted to, if you can highlight some key facts of Hyde, very few. Yeah, sure. So key facts, well, I would say key facts, ran, random facts about Hyde. So right. um, before before it was Hyde, it was a, it was a restaurant, um, it was a Lebanese restaurant on the first floor. It was a French restaurant 
on the ground floor and it was a nightclub in the basement and those three different parts were uh, joined together to create Hyde. Um, it is 12,000 square foot. Um, oh, that's quite a... Okay. Yeah, it's a big space. Uh, we employ, it's 154 people uh, in total. Uh, we seat, I think it's 174 if every seat is taken. Uh, 6,000 bottles of wine, roughly, about 5,000 bottles of spirits. Um, uh, what else? We, you know, we need to do about 200,000 net turnover uh, or a little bit more per week to break even, you know, which is obviously vast. Um, uh, the staircase was the first thing that was started the last thing that was finished mm -hmm. um, it was designed in Shoreditch made it in Poland uh, to completion then disassembled and then reassembled uh, as a metal framework surrounded by composite aged oak and there's about 15 different shades of wood stain from light to dark so you don't notice the difference but if you look at the if you look at above and you look at below you know they're they're very different shades of of wood, but if you know when you when you look at it um, as a as a kind of sculpture as such, then then you don't you don't notice the difference. Um, so yeah, if you and um, the food cost, yeah, you know, we're hitting uh, around information thirty two about thirty two percent. But yeah, we use a lot of lot of uh, luxury items there so um yeah i was gonna say we, we try and come in fairly priced you know uh i mean we're not we're not a cheap restaurant but i do think we offer good value for money i mean I, with the, the tasting menu if you think the amount of work that goes into making those nine courses you know the man hours on top of you know the cost of the turbo, the cost of the wagyu, or whatever it may be. Um, you know, chocolate, dairy is very expensive these days. So uh, I think I'd rather charge more but offer something better than uh, than charge less and and cut corners. Great, thank you. I, I have some few questions which I'll ask right now. Yeah. Uh, one of the students, Carl. Where and who you approach for financing the startup? Are there any agency in industry specialized in lining up investors and in startups? Um, no, it's the kind of sixty-four thousand dollar question for uh, <laughs> for chefs of finding backers, and you get. I think there's a. I've heard of something called White Rabbit that I think they do. They turn pop-ups into restaurants. Well, these are more, you know, kind of. 50 seat place in Soho or something something like that. I mean, it's a tricky one. You, you need to get lucky to some degree, but you also need to, you know, be investable in. So when, you know, when I was working in different restaurants, there weren't many people, you know, age 30 that have worked at Noma, the Fat Duck, Pierre Gagnier, you know, Le Manoir, Hibiscus, uh, Margaret's, you know, so I was, I had a CV that I was very proud of, and and was was a point of difference. And I'd I'd work my way up 
Um, uh, and I mean, it can, having smaller investors, but more of them works well because no one feels, well, no, no one's investing money that they can't afford to invest. And no one is putting kind of all their chips in and wants too much kind of say. So when I, when I did debut, there were about 20 different investors, all on very low percentages, but all of them, you know, felt they had like some skin in the game and, and you know, would promote the restaurant. So you can either, you know, you can either do it that way or, or with, with single backers. With companies, they're more sort of probably private equity based. So that would be more for doing things like rollouts. There are uh, investment companies where, um, you know, they will uh, look to raise money for you, but you invariably need a pre-existing business um, or, you know, some level of recognition uh, to, you know, to, to get investment. And with these companies, they often charge either a flat fee or take quite a high commission. So, you know, they're, you know, they serve a purpose, but obviously you get better rates um, if, if, they're, if they're avoided. Um, you know, obviously it's a tricky one raising finances for restaurants because you know, they're known to be very, very risky uh, you know, businesses to be involved in. But that said, a lot of people like the idea of investing in a restaurant and of feeling like, like an owner. So I'd say there's, there's two ways really. One of them is you either work your way up within a company and you reach a point where you can speak to you know, one of the money people and just say, look, I need to do something for myself and you know, offer them the chance to make money on the back of you, but with you having a percentage or you, you make a name for yourself working you know, as a head chef, but maybe in restaurants that aren't yours. Um, you know, so you could work at a D&D &D restaurant or, a, a, um, you know, other, you know, other restaurants, either independent or whatever. And if you're the head chef and you do some stuff on social media or TV or Great British Menu, whatever it is, you can become known. And then once that happens, you can look, you know, you'll be in a credible position. But it's it's a tricky one. I mean, I I got in through the back door as such with with Taboo because you know I was pretty brazen. Um, I asked anyone and everyone that I knew, and and my my tactics changed at the beginning. I was probably too humble and just felt grateful to get an audience with someone who who is in a position to invest. And then you know I realised pretty quickly that you need to make people feel like. If they don't invest, they are going to miss out on something quite special. And, uh, you know, you almost need to, to be pretty, almost like a bit nonchalant. And, you know, so it's like, oh, if they don't invest, I'll just get it from, from someone else. And that seems to be more, uh, <laughs> seems to work better or giving people timelines that they need to commit to. And again, it's also chicken and egg because you know, if you don't have a restaurant site, people can't visualize it and it just feels hypothetical. So a lot of investors are like, well, where's the site? And and you think, well, 
I don't have a site because I don't have the money. But then you don't have the money if you don't have the site. So um, for Debut, I had a lot of people lined up at a site that I had in mind. And then you kind of push on with both. Um, you tell people it's going to be there. And uh, so I simultaneously giving people instructions to send the money to the bank account whilst negotiating the, the lease with the landlord. And you hope that both of them come to fruition. And and they did because I wasn't in a position where I had a load of money to, to kind of get the ball rolling myself. And there was a point in Debu where me and, me and Oscar spent our money first. And, you know, if, if the alcohol uh, review got declined, then we might have been best part of, you know, 50 grand out of pocket because um, we needed to spend money on solicitors and on uh, uh, designers, uh, you know, because you need design packs to get the alcohol license and stuff like this. And, you know, we had to put deposit on the site. And uh, yeah, I mean, there was there's a lot of a lot of risk involved um, with it. So anyone looking to invest, you need, you know, only invest in a restaurant you know, if you can afford to lose that money. There's more lose it than than gain it, you know, than, than make profit, um, which is sad but true. I mean, for me, I was willing to lose every penny. I'd worked so hard, I just couldn't not try for myself. I felt utterly driven and, and compelled and, and like I said, I was willing to lose everything and obviously luckily I didn't, but you know, there's a lot of people that, that do, so you need to you need to go into it with open eyes. Okay, great. You mentioned about white rabbit and the pop-ups and things like this. Yeah. But a question from Thomas here. Uh, hideaway pop-up at Chelsea Barack? Yeah. Ended last December. Yeah. So the current climate is completely different to how it was last year. Yeah. But would you have any plans to open up some kind of a pop-up in future? Yeah, so you know, never say never. We would look at everything with its individual merits, and uh, it needs to be something that would feel different to hide, feel positive, promote it in some way. I mean, with the Chelsea Barracks, the um, the guys behind the barracks, the developers, they worked very near uh, Hyde. They're a lovely bunch of people. They loved what we did at Burlington Arcade and wanted something wanted something there short term. Uh, excuse me, one second. Hello. Apologies, I'll turn my mobile off. There's a, a landline just next to me. Um, so we wanted something that would... Uh, so the developers for Chelsea Barracks wanted something that uh, to bring a bit of life into the development whilst the first people uh, were moving in. So we were there for a few months and just did, um, yeah, just, you know, coffees, croissants. It was a very simple offering, but... There's a lovely kind of cafe space there, um, so it worked well, and it wasn't cannibalizing of of Hyde's you know Hyde's business in any way. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, we definitely do would do would do future pop-ups. Yeah. Um, so got a question coming in. What has been your favorite restaurant culture or kitchen culture from the places you worked, staged, and at what? And what have you incorporated or specifically avoided in building your kitchen culture at Hyde? Yeah, um, I mean, fav favorite kitchen culture is obviously 
the one that hides is the one that we we drive and, and define but the one that the one that was probably most most memorable was um was Le Manoir because the level of organization the level of discipline I think that that was the one that really uh crystallized um you know the the dedication and the organization uh needed and it was utterly uncompromising and uh so yeah so i'd say the, the culture at le manoir is the one that was most conducive to my kind of success but like i said i the one i enjoy the most is obviously the one that that i i lead as such yep now um we do have a lot of questions coming uh with reference to social distancing and so on yeah i'm just going to possibly uh, put a hold there at this moment of time and I will probably come up with those questions a bit later. Yeah. Then you mentioned about different menus, different uh, brigades. You have a large brigade. Yeah. Would you be able to just give us a bit more of the details about the departments, the brigade in general, and what kind of training and development do you provide for the, yeah. for the staffing? Yeah, no, so I mean, for for Hyde, it's really important that that there are clearly defined sections and leaders within those sections and accountability. Uh, you know, it, it's such a broad menu that there can't be anything nebulous in in the structure. Uh, you know, of, of the of the kitchen that that produces it. So we have a breakfast chef, and he has a small team. We have uh, a head baker he has a small team we have uh, an overall pastry chef and pastry chefs on both floors we have a head chef for above a head chef for ground we have a goods received chef we have a kitchen ops manager that does food costings all the health and safety and hygiene um and then obviously sous chefs on each floor as well so uh it's really important that people feel like they're not overwhelmed by by the workload uh, especially because of the level of attention to detail for for every element of every dish um, and like i said that then there needs to be uh you know protocols so things like checking the, the preparations every 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 day um and ownership of responsibility so you know it's uh everyone feels like they can spread their wings and and uh you know grow within their teams or within the company um and yeah taking ownership is a is a, is a big thing i mean it shows that i've got faith in them and and uh it just you just avoid mistakes and it's not a blame culture it's a pride culture it's people you know, enjoying what they do feeling proud of serving it you know rather than the flip side of things going wrong and oh that was john's fault no no no, it was james's fault or whatever so the ownership isn't you know it, I'd, I'd say that you know i say that in a, in a positive positive way mm. great and the the relationship you developed and you i'm sure you have 
a lot of students coming around and also chefs coming from different different backgrounds for getting exposure in 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 Hyde. In terms of careers and in terms of advice for students, how do you kind of give a bit of an aspiration to be a professional chef? I've got some questions about that coming around. Yeah, yeah, I'd say um, I mean it without meaning to sound too well too bleak but um you know like i said you need to subjugate your, your social life for your career you know work hard now so you can reap the benefits later um you know kitchens are completely meritocratic you turn up early you look at the part you work hard question things you eat out you read you will progress you know it, it, it's that simple you get what you give and I loved that about cooking. I felt like my future was in was in my own hands. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess that that's the first bit of advice is you know, give everything you've got, but right. be smart as well. You know, uh, it's uh, you know only do it if if you love it, and you know it's not a job, it's not a career, it's a way of life given you know the hours you work and the sacrifices you make so um you know there's it's not something you do to get rich quickly it's something you do because you love cooking and and it and you know serendipitously it's a way that you can you know make money out of something that you love to do thank you you mentioned about quite a few emphasis or probably heavy emphasis on pastry baking and all the things yeah. with the, the larger operation yeah we do have a very huge strong student body who who specializes in pastry yeah any any tips any advices any any anything which you can share in terms um, of deal with it yeah so i think uh i mean for me personally i love uh i love working on on pastry dishes baking it's something that not all chefs gonna like to to lead or be involved in uh, some people just want to do savory stuff and that's it but um i worked i was baking uh well i worked briefly in the pastry section at le manoir and then always made bread at taboo and we, we never had pastry chefs at taboo so always did all the desserts really with, with myself and we just rotate a different person onto onto pastry so we didn't have a big enough kind of kitchen to to do it in um obviously hides very different We've got a very talented team uh, I'd say the craft of pastry is, is key. I mean, recently there's been a lot of kind of deconstructed desserts, but um, you know, I think I think old-fashioned puddings or even modern twists on them uh, are really popular. People want what they can't do at home, and obviously there's a real visual to pastry, but you know, it has to taste good as well. You know, there's some pastry chefs out there and the stuff you know, looks very impressive, but then you eat it and it might be too sweet or might taste a bit synthetic or whatever. It's, it's, you know, it's got to taste as good as it looks. And, uh, you know, I think freshness is important. Um, you know, not everything has to be cooked to a compote or overly sweet. I think, you know, Obviously, pastry is a is a field where there's a lot of kind of chemistry involved, but that doesn't mean you can't 
just have ripe fruit or things that are very uh, kind of sensitively handled as well. Um, and I think more and more people want to eat less sweet things these days. So having uh, a light touch, just as in the in the savory kitchen, you know, people generally have using a little bit less salt. Uh, equally, in the in the sweet kitchen, using a, a little bit less less sugar. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that would be the main the main tips. But again, just uh, cover all the sections. Work for the best bakers, you know. Uh, or the best pastry chefs, um, and uh, yeah, how read up, eat team? out. How big is your pastry team? Um, that's about hang on, four, including bakery, probably about, probably about, I'd guess, 12 to 14. That's a decent workforce within a restaurant. Just yeah, it is. Well, again, everything is done done from scratch. So yeah. uh, you know, the croissants, the bread, um, the jams, the butter, ice creams, pity uh, for you know, it's it's something that again is is a, is a point of difference for us. Right. You mentioned about a very good talented team. What do you have mm. in terms of training and development? Development. You are one of those who encourages. Uh, a good talent building and obviously let people go for different competitions and things like this. Would yeah. you be able to kind of touch base on what kind of training programs you have and how you foster these trainings? Yeah, I mean, I'd say there's a couple of ways we do it really. One of them is obviously just rotating people around the kitchen. Like I said, young chefs don't get paid hugely financially, so they need to feel like they're learning and progressing their career. So the more interest they show, the more time I'll, I'll spend with them and, and nurture them. Um, you know, when when we work on dishes, I explain the thought processes behind them. I'm happy for my chefs to cook me dishes, um, a version of which might appear on the menu. And I think, you know, it's just the senior chef is, chefs that do that. But I think them seeing their prototype dish for the finished dish, which may be completely different or just a, a refinement thereof, but usually it's simplifying and usually explaining where the pleasure is, um, and hopefully seeing the dish through my eyes or the the you know the the pleasure I guess through you know through the customer's eyes rather than looking at things from our technique driven or whatever it may be. Um, often things can be can be paired back. And then obviously if people want to enter competitions, then we'll let them we'll let them practice. I'll I'll advise, I don't get too heavily involved. Um it depends on depends on the person really. Um uh you know, I don't want to be pres prescriptive on you know them to win competitions on, on their own merits, but I'll gladly try dishes they come up with. Um and and yeah, help where I can. Um, and yeah, we're really lucky. We've had two really scholars at, at Hyde. So Luke, who's my first head chef in um, in Above, and Martin, who's the development chef. Um, so both, you know, technically, you know, very very gifted chefs who you know, com you know completely deserved uh, the accolade, and you know, very proud of you know what they what they achieved. I mean, I have absolutely zero uh, 
credit to claim vicariously. You know, they they won the competition individually. Um, but, but yeah, hopefully a bit of the time they spent. Yeah, but your support yeah. is kind of very uh, incremental in this in this regard for them to shine in these kind of competitions. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know you you want the best for the people that that work for you on a, on a daily basis. So whatever we can do to help, you know, we, we should. I think that's it's important as a company to you know yeah. to support you know yeah. the staff. It's not just the payroll at the end of the month. It's all the other things and the empathy that um that counts all the small gestures that count a lot more than than you know you might think earlier on you mentioned about around six thousand bottles of wine yeah. in the stock you know this is something very unheard of in many institutions you know yeah. the you know restaurants will not have that kind of much feature yeah have a relationship with hedonism which mm. you uh, told us before could you connect those pieces and tell us how you link the hedonism offerings. There's such an amount of astounding number of wines and spirits into your offering. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously we, we want to serve the best possible food and best possible drink alongside it. They go they go hand in hand. Um, obviously, both businesses uh, um, share a similar aesthetic in some ways, a quirkiness. Um, Obviously, they're independently owned and, and geographically very, very near each other. But I think obviously the way that we, uh, you know, uh, uh, link it is that, you know, there's no there's no compromise. We try and be the best in our field in both. The way we make it accessible is not just offering ultra top end. You can come to Hyde and you can have a coffee and a croissant, you know, and get change from a tenner. Or you can have a bottle of wine, you know, around the, I don't know what the cheapest one is at Hyde, but it's under uh, hedonism rather, but it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's under 20 quid. Um, yeah, I think the way we see it, uh, hedonism, there's no point offering anything too cheap because you just don't get the value, you know, because so much of, of uh, you get so much better value just being one notch up uh, as a, at the entry level. But I was going to say another way we make it make the wine list accessible is through the iPads. So obviously, if you have six thousand bottles in a in a um, in a document, that's uh, you know that's obviously a massive wedge of uh, wedge of paper that's going to be sitting on the table. So the software in the iPads is, is is brilliant. You know, you you just click on your your filters, so white or red. You have a sliding scale for your budget, so no less than this, no more than that. Um, and then, you know, your grape variety or your region, and then the appropriate page comes up. I'm a bit of a, bit of a technophobe, so for me, even being on a Microsoft Teams uh, uh, meeting is, is, a, is a, feels like a minor victory, but, um, you know, when I was first handed these iPads, I was a little bit sceptical, but you know, from a customer point of view, they, they work brilliantly. So I think it's it's a great way of, of making a 6,000 bin list feel very manageable. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Now, we all know about the current situation, the present COVID situation. We have mm -hmm. so many questions coming on that respect. Yeah. But how are you dealing with the present climate? Uh, what are activities you're engaging? Um, so, I mean, we 
we're offering a, a home delivery service at the moment called Hide at Home. Uh, it's a lot busier than we, we expected. We didn't really know what to expect, but um, been really, really delighted by uh, the appreciation from our existing customers. I think we've gained a new fan base and and, and galvanised the existing one. Um, you know, in the current climate, people, you know, want a bit of luxury, a bit of escapism, something they can enjoy at home, and you know that that's exactly what we offer. We don't recreate high dishes, but we do, you know, comfort food well. So it could be a crab linguine or some madeleines. You know, it's it's dishes that you wouldn't necessarily cook for yourself at home, but you can enjoy it at home rather than anything avant-garde which probably would feel a bit a bit strange to be eating in a, in a domestic environment um he kept on the senior team i mean they, they've made sacrifices and and uh you know working hard for the longevity of the business um i think it's important for us to stay open and to offer something um we're lucky because uh the floor plan of hyde is is quite expansive so we can we can have the chefs we have, um, you know, we, and with them working uh, in in sort of segregation. Um, yeah, we had to um, get clued up pretty quickly about takeaway packaging and branding and do a you know online ordering website and there was a lot of things we kind of learnt on the hop. But yeah, we did that pretty quickly and obviously refined as we as we went along and luckily. In this scenario, you know the, the public are, are kind of happy for um, just to get something. So in the early days, when we, you know we might not have been quite as slick as what we are now, but we were offering something that they couldn't get anywhere else. So um, yeah, I think we're a bit like a swan. We managed to sort of uh, you know glide through while our feet were fr frantically um paddling underneath, and uh, yeah, we we you know, happy with um with how it's going. We've segregated into two teams. So I'm I'm off today and it's Josh uh, Angus, head chef on ground, who's will be leading leading the kitchen there at the moment. Um we thought that was a safer way to do it. Obviously we have social distancing, but we, we thought if there's less kind of cross pollination that that's another thing we could do as a company. Um the company also covers their transport. So you know they're getting if they can't cycle or walk to work, uh, we cover the cost of their Ubers. So um, again, they just feel comfortable. And obviously, as we employ more people and the virus lessens, then then you know we'll go back to public transport. But um, while things are at their peak, I think it's important to, um, to respect um, you know obviously their their welfare and and. Uh, I was going to say it felt very different at the beginning, but we're now in a routine. Hopefully, just one more month of it or so, and uh, you know, we're we're hoping we can open to some level in July. And realistically, there'll be takeaway and uh, or home delivery rather, and uh, and the restaurant. Um, but yeah, we'll take it as it comes. But looking forward to being able to serve customers uh, in the building serve food on plates hmm. and uh, to get people back on the payroll. I think you covered the social distancing questions, which has been flurrying around here in a, in a, in a detailed manner. I think you've kind of covered most of it. Now, 
uh, I think we are just closing. The, the time is almost up. Just before we move on, one question for you. Mm -hmm. What are the future trends in food? What would you think about the future trends in food? That is casual dining, health dining, yeah. fine dining. How do you think it's going to go from your well, from your uh, opinion? <laughs> no idea. I always rubbish with trends because always just do what I want to do, and and uh, that isn't always the most commercial kind of uh, view. But um, I think, I mean, whenever I get asked this question. The stock answer is that you know healthy food isn't a fad. It more and more people uh, you know want to eat healthily without it being eating healthily or making a you know it's no longer a a deliberate decision that you should be doing something. It's an ingrained decision that you just can you know that people take. So they don't they don't think they should eat a fruit salad because it's healthy. They they eat a fruit salad because they want to eat a fruit salad, not because it's the low calorie option or whatever. Same with all the grains, all the pulses, all the vegetarian food. It's become more and more ingrained rather than a kind of hippy dippy. Oh, she's got you know someone's going for the quinoa salad. It's you know it's mainstream now and um, and popular and more and more so. Um, I think you know uh, potentially with you know post pandemic people will appreciate restaurants more and uh, uh, won't just be looking for the for the cheapest one they'll have cooked for themselves at home and will have seen that you can't really recreate certain level of restaurant food so I think there'll be fresh appreciation for for the craft behind it I think there'll be fresh appreciation for for the you know, for human contact. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, other than that, I mean, nothing, you know, there's no, no, no crystal ball um, per se, but I think people will always be happy to pay for quality. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that the golden rule in hospitality is don't look at your bottom line, look at creating the best possible product. And, and if you do that, profit comes. It's, it's when you, it, you know, it's when you start looking to, you know, save money or cut corners here or there that the customer sees it. And uh, um, so just offering a great product at a fair price is, would be the, you know, the, the best rule. And if you, if you do that, then it doesn't matter what food you do, you'll, you know, you'll do well. But I think the other thing is with things like, you know, uh, raw fish and salads, there's, you know, it's easier to make money from them because there's less shrinkage as things cook. There's yeah. less, less waste. Um, they're healthy. Uh, you know, you need less chefs because um, there's less elaborate processes so i think these kind of fresher simpler more ingredient led foods are actually also more uh, financially viable um so you know it's and an only going to be more popular so i think some of the those sort of la concepts are going to be coming you know coming over here yeah 
Okay. I think we have covered a lot of topics and interesting points of discussion here. I would say thank you very much for your time. I would say that's a wrap. Yeah. Thanks, Oli, again for gracing your presence in our chat room and inspiring all our future chefs and the Cotton Blur community. On behalf of all of us, we wish you more laurels and continued success. Stay safe, everyone. Goodbye. Thanks, Oli, once again. Cheers. Take care, everyone, and best of luck. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beyond the Plate, Industry Talks by Le Cordon Bleu. Keep up to date with all our news and episodes by following us on social media or by signing up to our newsletter. Links are included in the episode notes. Until next time, à bientôt.